Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 14, verses 13 through 24. The text for our sermon is even uh, more narrow than what it says there in the section under the sermon. It's verses 18 through 20. So we're focusing only on those three verses, 18 through 20, but we read the rest of this for context. Genesis 14, verses 13 through 24. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who are with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to read the whole chapter. Up to this point in the book of Hebrews, the apostle has multiple times referred to the superiority of Christ's priesthood doing so by referring to Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And here he begins to explain why he has been doing that. Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office 
have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the truth of your word, for the wisdom and knowledge that you give to us as your spirit works among us. We praise you for the goodness of your word, for the goodness of the life that we know and experience as we are shaped and formed by it. And we praise you for the beauty of your word, for the unity of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, all centered around our Lord Jesus Christ to your glory as your spirit illumines these things for us. 
As we praise you for these things, so we acknowledge our dependence upon you that we might receive any of them. And so we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit powerfully working in your midst that we might receive good things from your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, here is where I was planning to say all along, finally we have arrived at Melchizedek, but now I am regretting building up all of that expectation. This is a very difficult text, a very difficult text of Scripture to treat rightly and to hear rightly as God's people. There are puzzles here, it's very much how it feels, connecting how Genesis 14 speaks of Melchizedek what Psalm 110 says, promising that the, the son of David, who is also David's Lord, would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then you bring in all the things the book of Hebrews says. You say, what, what is going on here? And whenever we arrive at a place where Scripture feels like a puzzle, we have to be careful to remember what it is we are doing together. First, we must remember what the role of the minister is. When a text of Scripture feels like a puzzle, and when, by God's grace, what we do together results in us understanding Scripture more, there is a temptation to feel like the minister or the church is between us and Scripture. Scripture is over here, mysterious and strange. The minister does some mystical thing, and now suddenly it is saying something clear to us. This is a real danger. The minister is never between us and God's word. God's word speaks to us directly as the people of God. The minister is not a priest between us and scripture, between us and the Lord. Rather, it is the, test, the task of the minister to help us see what God's word has been saying to us all along. All of scripture is God's word to you. The minister is simply one of us set aside to do the task to help us see that, to proclaim that in our midst. But what is being proclaimed has been God's word to you all along. We must remember that. Second, when Scripture feels like a puzzle, it can be tempting, as I've warned us many times, to think that what we are doing is simply an academic exercise, to think that what we are doing is simply learning information. Now, there is information that we are learning. It's one of the fun, enjoyable things about God's Word. There's always more about God, about His ways to learn. But what is happening is, of course, far more than learning. We are gathered together on the Lord's Day, the day of the resurrection of Christ. We are gathered together as His assembled church, anticipating the feast of the Lord's Supper. And so we are gathered here anticipating this is not simply a time of teaching, but that this is the living voice of Christ speaking to us through His Word. Christ meets with His people by His Spirit on the Lord's Day. And one of the primary ways He does that is through His Word. That is what we anticipate. And so when we are, you know, roughly halfway, say, through this sermon, and we're wondering what is the point, the point we are headed toward is not, first of all, that I'm going to give you a list of ten things to go do. The point is... Christ is speaking through his word. He is speaking to us grace. He is speaking in a way that by his spirit changes us and forms us, and that is what we expect together. So, with that expectation, we come to the account of Melchizedek greeting Abram. 
The story is very short. In chapter 14, we are focusing in particular on verses 18 through 20. Abram is returning from the defeat of the five kings from the east who had invaded the west. Lot had been taken captive. We read the account where Abram took 318 of his trained men, pursued those five kings, chased them all the way out of Canaan, and then brought back Lot and all the spoils that had been taken. Abram is returning victorious. Remember that the king of Sodom treats him in a relatively rude, disrespectful way. And located in the middle of that account is the account of Melchizedek greeting Abram. There are three main things that happen. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. This is, you know, at the surface level, simply a friendly gesture to celebrate because Abram had just chased the enemies out of the land. Verse 19, he blesses him. Blessed be Abraham, be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So first, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. Second, Melchizedek blesses Abram and blesses the Lord. And then, the second half of verse 20, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram gives Melchizedek a tithe. Thus far, the story. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that in all of this, Melchizedek was functioning as a type of Christ. A type meaning an Old Testament figure who was foreshadowing or pointing forward to who Christ would be and what Christ would do. And Hebrews 7 uses that to argue for the superiority of Christ to all of the Levitical priesthood, the line of priests in the Old Testament scriptures. Now that Christ has offered himself as a sacrifice, there is no longer any need for the Levitical priesthood, for the temple, for the offerings. To make that argument, the apostle points to Melchizedek. Look at Melchizedek pointing forward to Christ, the glory of Christ. Thus far, perhaps, could be the whole sermon. Melchizedek points forward to Christ. Now the trick here is, if we do that, what we end up doing, and this is why I told you a moment ago, this is a very difficult text to preach. What we end up doing is we end up preaching Hebrews 7 instead of Genesis 14. If we do that, we end up preaching what the New Testament says about Melchizedek instead of preaching Melchizedek from Genesis 14 on its own terms. Here could be, I think we could summarize this as a bit of a lesson for how we read the scriptures in general, not just this passage. We never want to reduce the Old Testament to what the New Testament says about it. The Old Testament remains as God's word alongside the New. The Old Testament speaks on its own terms. Sometimes we're even misled by calling it the Old Testament, like it's somehow lesser. The Old Testament is the Elder Testament, the one that speaks to us in even more ancient words, and we should not filter it through, reduce it to what the New Testament says. The challenge for us this morning is to hear Genesis 14 alongside Hebrews chapter 7 and to hear them equally, fully proclaiming Christ to us. Well, how do we do that? Well, when Hebrews 7 says that Melchizedek was pointing to Christ, 
Hebrews 7 actually preaches an Old Testament text. And the, test, the text that Hebrews 7 preaches is Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, the famous psalm quoted many, many times in the New Testament, in which David speaks of his son as being his Lord. David is speaking here as a prophet. He is speaking of his son being the Messiah who God had promised he would reign on the throne forever. And David in Psalm 110 is speaking of his son who would be his Lord. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand so I make your enemies your footstool. And in verse 4 he says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David, looking ahead to his son, who would be his Lord, says, the Lord has sworn to him he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7 is saying that's how we know Melchizedek pointed forward to Christ. Okay, well now we need to go even further. Why did David say that? Here is where we are tempted to cheat, especially as Conservative Christians who affirm that all of Scripture is God's Word. All of it is breathed out by God. All of it is the work of the Holy Spirit, inspiring, breathing out the very words of Scripture. What are we tempted to say when I ask, why why did David say that? Well, because God told him to. God, the the Holy Spirit sort of whispered in his ear, David, I know this doesn't make any sense to you, but you're going to write down these words because it's going to be Scripture. Write down that the Lord has sworn to your son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I think for all of us, especially who've grown up with a high view of Scripture, in a good way, we often think of it that way. But this is not how inspiration works. There are places where the Lord gives words to people where they don't fully understand what is going on or why. But the vast majority of the time in Scripture, the Lord is using the human knowledge and experience and wisdom of the human writer, and he is fully using those things. When David wrote this, he knew what he was doing. David was being wise about the Scriptures, anticipating that Melchizedek pointed forward, was part of an order that pointed forward to one who was greater than him. David was being wise about Genesis 14. So, way too long of an introduction. Here is the fun thing we get to do together this morning. We want to ask, what was it about Genesis 14 that led David, guided by the Holy Spirit, every word breathed out by God, but nevertheless fully David being engaged, that led David to say, the Messiah would be after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, cites Psalm 110 verse 4. Psalm 110 verse 4 is being wise about Genesis 14. Let's ask how. We're going to see three things in this account from Genesis 14. And if three makes you nervous after a long introduction, let's look at this way. Two things and then a conclusion. Three things from Genesis 14 that indicate, signal, point forward to the something more who would be the Messiah. First, the grace of God. Second, it reveals the glory of Christ. And third, it speaks of the work of Christ. First, this text reveals the grace of God. Why would David, having grown up with these scriptures, knowing they are God's word, why would David be aware that there's something happening here that is pointing forward to more? Well, the first, and I 
you know, I think quite possibly, I agonize way more than I should on the order of these points. This first one I almost wanted to put last. Because I think quite possibly, this is the most important thing. The story is just strange and mysterious. And we need to, um, especially if, if you have grown up with these things, we need to revive the sense of mysteriousness. Abram has returned from a battle. These are very real, earthy, historical events that are happening. He has returned from this battle, and in a way that interrupts the account of the king of Sodom meeting with him and speaking with him, suddenly we have verse 18, and Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine. Now one of the things Hebrews 7 detects, and one of the things Psalm, David in Psalm 110 is detect, detecting, is that Melchizedek comes out of nowhere. The way the story is told, he simply appears out of nowhere. There is no accounting for him. There's no description of where he came from. He is just suddenly there. And he comes out of nowhere. Now, I don't mean physically suddenly there. He walked, all right, to come see Abram. My point is in the flow of the story, he just appears. Melchizedek is there. And there is a greatness to Melchizedek, a... uh, a demeanor, an air about him, a mysteriousness that suggests a kind of greatness to his figure and character. And then the text tells us, he was priest of God most high. To which all of us should say, what? Like that's just a thing that would happen, that was happening? There's just this guy out there who is priest of God most high? This ought to amaze us, thrill us, strike us. It is precisely this thing that David is picking up on and that Hebrews 7 is picking up on. That here we are in the moment in the story. Remember, Genesis 1 through 11 is about all the nations, the whole world. Genesis 12, the focus comes to Abram, his family, Israel. The distinctness, the unique story of Israel. And then right here at the beginning of that, the beginning of the focus on Israel... Abram, you are God's chosen one. You are God's covenant people. You are the people called out to be God's people. Oh yeah, right here at the beginning, I guess there's also Melchizedek, priest of God most high. He's he's a thing too. So wait a minute, what is being said? God is at work outside of Israel. The word is at work outside of Israel. The Reformed theologian Herman Bavink making the case that after the fall into sin, that the knowledge of God was not entirely lost, that there are indicators that there were those who were faithful. We're told earlier, for example, that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. One of the things he cites to remind us that the knowledge of God was never fully lost, but was maintained throughout the world, was the sudden presence of Melchizedek, priest of God most high. And then there is the wisdom of his words. Listen to what he says. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram has just had a successful military campaign. The suggestion of the text being that it was born of actual skill and ability. These were his trained men. His tactics are described. And this Melchizedek wisely proclaims that nevertheless it is God most high who has given you this victory. And then the statement before that though, possessor of heaven and earth. Here is deep 
wisdom. In the midst of all the pagans, each nation having their God, their particular God with their name and what their God was like and what their God did, we often can think because Israel believed in what we call monotheism, one God, that what Israel was doing was saying, no, only our one is real, the rest of those aren't real. That's not what Israel was saying. Israel was saying, we shouldn't be worshiping beings in the creation. We should be worshiping the creator, the one who possesses heaven and earth, the one who is the very ground of being, the reason there is something rather than nothing. And here is Melchizedek affirming that very faith, that we worship God most high, the one who is the possessor of heaven and earth, the creator. His words are deeply wise about the creator and about what a faithful creature should do. A faithful creature should not be looking for a powerful being, however spiritual, however powerful in the world, but rather should be worshiping the creator, the one who just is one. We could say that what Melchizedek is saying here is anticipating what Moses would later say. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Melchizedek is wisely acknowledging all of these realities. And here is the part that must infinitely amaze us. He's not an Israelite. He's not of the family of Abram. He just suddenly appears like he's kind of always been there. How can this be? Well, God's purposes are wider than Israel. And indeed, we should expect this because God had said to Abram in Genesis 12, his plan was that through Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed, that God's purposes are for the sake of the nations. And so God is at work among the nations. And here is Melchizedek as an anticipation of that. Indeed, Melchizedek blesses Abram. And God had just told Abram, all those who bless you, I will bless. And all those who curse you, I will curse. So here is Melchizedek from the nations, blessing Abram, Abram whose son would one day be the one by whom all the nations, including Melchizedek, would be blessed, receiving salvation through the work of Christ, Melchizedek himself being one who points forward to that Christ. This is sparkling with, overflowing with, God's purpose to save the nations. This is why his covenant people exist, because his purpose is to save the nations. This is why his church continues to exist in the world, because his eternal purpose has been to save and rescue the nations. But maybe we're skipping a few steps. This is why you are here, because God's eternal character made clear in the very existence of Melchizedek was a concern for all the nations of the world. And that was his grace that sought you out. That was his grace that found you and brought you to faith by his spirit and gathered you together as his covenant people. And one of the things that a text like this testifies to is that eternal character of who God is. The eternal character of God's grace and love and concern for all of the world in a way that stands as an eternal testimony to strengthen your faith in his grace for you. The grace of God. Second, it also proclaims to us the glory of Christ. Hebrews 7 said, 
some very interesting things about this Melchizedek. One of the things it said was this, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God continues a priest forever. This has led to all manner of speculation regarding who this Melchizedek is. But here's where we have to be careful. Hebrews 7 is not adding something to Genesis 14. It is preaching Genesis 14. It's expanding upon what the text itself actually says. And so we need to, again, not filter it through Hebrews 7, but go back and read what the text says. What is Hebrews 7's point? That in the story of Melchizedek, it does not say who his father or mother was. It does not say what his genealogy was. And this should strike us. Genesis, up till this point, has been full of genealogies. Anytime there was someone who was an important spiritual character, someone who matters for the covenant people, part of the whole point is to show that they were of the line of promise, of the genealogy of the line of promise that God had proclaimed would be the people through whom the Messiah would come. And here appears Melchizedek without any of that. Something is being said about how God works. Melchizedek appears out of nowhere, and that out of nowhereness says something about the character of priesthood. Now, this would matter for Israel's story later on because eventually it's going to be said that priests need to be Levites. And what Hebrews 7 is saying. Now, hold on, that is not absolute. That's not the big story because the original priest was before Levites even existed. And in fact, Hebrews 7 says, Levi, yet to be born from Abram's family, it's as though Levi in Abram actually brings tithes to Melchizedek. That there is a priority to this one who did not have genealogy. And the way Melchizedek simply appears on the scene and then disappears, no account of his genealogy, no account of his death, gives him a kind of eternal character. Now, we have every reason to assume he did have a genealogy, a mother and father, every reason to assume he did die. But Hebrews 7's point is that the text doesn't say that. And we read the text, we say, man, you're right, it is strange how he is just there and then just disappears. Hebrews tells us that Genesis 14 in that way is saying something about the priesthood. That the priesthood was not just about a certain biological family, a certain genealogy, like the Levites somehow had some sort of priestly power. Priesthood was about something eternal that God was doing. There was a priest before the Levites even existed, prior to the Levites, outside the Levites, a priest to whom Levi and Abram even brought tithes. And all of that would proclaim, before Hebrews 7 ever says it, all of that would proclaim that the Levitical priesthood of Israel was temporary. That in contrast with that, it was not eternal. That it depended on genealogy. And Melchizedek therefore pointed forward to the one who would not depend on genealogy. The one who would be eternal. On that basis, David says in Psalm 110 that his son would be the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, all of that, I know, You try to look at all of it at the same time. Genesis 14 alongside Hebrews 7 is delightfully complex. 
It's hard to hold it all in our minds at the same time, just how it all fits together. But that beauty and glory of it is precisely the point. Here is the glory of Christ. Christ, proclaimed by Genesis 14, is the one who would be greater than the Levitical priesthood, who would do something that those priests could not do, who would do something eternal. Christ is the one who'd be greater than Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who in the in a literary sense, in the way the story is told, has a kind of eternal character, Christ would actually be eternal. The eternal Son of God who would be and do for Israel what only God could be and do for Israel. That Christ would be all of those things and surpass all of those things. And it was the Son who would be incarnate, who would do all those things, who was being made known here in Genesis chapter 14. What is the payoff of all of that? Right? I see on your faces, we're like, all right, we think we're keeping up, maybe. What's the payoff of all of that? Well, this is what then Hebrews 7 preaches based on Genesis 14. Consequently, he, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews is saying, look, this has always been God's way. This has always been what God was doing. It was always God's purpose. And that sense of the ancientness, the mysteriousness, the fact that it was prior to the Levitical priesthood simply announces the definitiveness of all of it. This is eternally who God is, eternally what God would do and has done for you as his covenant people. He, therefore can save you to the uttermost. What God does in Christ is not on a whim. It's not a plan B. It's not simply something he, he chooses to do arbitrarily, but it is rather the revealing of his very character, who he is. And that eternal character of his salvation is revealed in the very existence of Melchizedek. There's even more. Melchizedek then shows us something of the beauty and character of that work of Christ. When we have these sorts of things where you have a strange Old Testament figure and then a New Testament explanation or proclamation of it, we're tempted to think of it as the Old Testament is the weird stuff. Remember we saw this in Leviticus. And then the New Testament comes along and explains it. But what Hebrews 7 is saying is that Genesis 14 was clear. What Christ did is hard to explain. And Genesis 14 illuminates who Christ is and what Christ has done. Genesis 14, Melchizedek helps us know more about Jesus. And we need Genesis 14 to stand there alongside the New Testament to tell us that more, that beauty, that glory of Christ. Remember our time in Leviticus that the Old Testament scriptures are not like the booster rockets of the space shuttle that fall away. They don't go away and then we're done with it. Rather, they remain with us. It's not that we get to Christ, then we don't need them anymore. It remains with us as that which proclaims and preaches Christ. So, how does this account of Genesis 14 tell us something about Christ? Well, one of the things Hebrews 7 points out, simply by way of translating the text, 
is how Melchizedek is referred to in verse 18. Verse 18, he is Melchizedek, and simply by translating the name means king of righteousness. But then he is referred to as king of Salem. Salem here is almost certainly the city that would be Jerusalem, that David would later make the capital city. He is king of righteousness and king of Salem. Salem means peace. So here we have united in one person the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Those words ought to amaze us in the midst of this story. This story was just surrounded by all manner of death and chaos and bloodshed, all manner of horrors that have been happening. And here is the one who stands, united in his one person, king of righteousness and king of peace. Here is the promise of the world set right. Here is the promise of shalom, wholeness, life as it was made to be. Here is the promise of both righteousness and peace dwelling together justice, the way the world ought to be, and in a way that brings peace, gives peace. Melchizedek stands as the announcement that this is what God was doing all along, and that this is what God has done for us in Christ. That Christ, like Melchizedek, unites righteousness and peace in his person. He is the one who by his death and resurrection sets the world right. Although actually, it does raise the question, How can righteousness and peace be united? How can all of this happen? Well, Melchizedek also unifies king and priest. He is king of Salem, who brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, later in Israel's story, king and priest are separate, and they're very much kept separate. But David notices this. David notices his own weaknesses and failures as a king. David knows that he himself cannot be the answer. God had promised a son would sit on the throne forever. David's going to die. His sons are going to die. And so David says that his son, who would be his Lord, Psalm 110 verse 4, would also be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. David says in Psalm 110, Israel, what you need, world, what you need, is one who would unite king and priest who would be in his person all that Israel needs, all that the covenant people need, all that the world needs for their salvation. This would be increasingly clear as the story would go on. The prophets would speak this way. Zechariah's branch, for example, pointing to the Messiah, unites king and priest in his person. And Psalm 110 is wisely identifying this, that our Lord Jesus Christ would be the one after the order of Melchizedek, who would be both king and priest, who in his person would be and do all that is needed for the salvation of his people. Now, don't hear that as, okay, now we skip to Christ. You need this to proclaim Christ, to reveal Christ, to announce him. Because what do we so often want? We want one without the other. We want the one who is priest, my individual salvation, all that king stuff of the world and everything that's confronting the world too much. I don't know, that's strange. Just let him be my personal savior, priest, just me. Or we want the one who is king, victorious, ruling, taking over the nations, but without all of that sacrifice and suffering stuff. What a priest would do, ultimately offering himself. Christ unites them in his person so that in Revelation chapter 5, 
when John is told, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He turns and looks at the conquering lion and he sees a lamb who had been slain. Jesus Christ is both prefigured, foreshadowed by Melchizedek as the one who unites king and priest. Jesus is both lion and lamb. And what we need, what the world needs, what the church needs is the announcement of Jesus Christ in precisely those terms. Christ unites righteousness and peace, and he does so for you and your salvation. Christ unites king and priest, and he does so for you and for your salvation. And all of that converges in the words that a bunch of us have been wishing we were talking about more the whole time. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. Let it be echoes. Let it be illusions, connections. Let it be part of a pattern throughout the scripture that when God makes renews covenant with his people, there is a meal. Let it be part of a pattern throughout Scripture that when God creates, He creates and provides every plant bearing seed, every tree bearing fruit, grain and fruit, bread and wine. Let it be part of the echo that when the one greater than Melchizedek the one from Abram's family, the one greater than Levitical priest, when he establishes the meal with his people, when he has accomplished all that this text foreshadowed, and he calls them to eat bread and wine. And let it stand as a promise that when God acts through his perfect priest king, when God acts through the one who unites righteousness and peace in his person, when God acts through the one who is greater than all who had come before, what he brings about is shalom, peace, wholeness, life as it was made to be, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at the center of that life is that feast in God's presence. And let all of that be his word to you from Genesis 14, the ancient character of God's promises fulfilled in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your word. We pray that you would direct us toward our Lord Jesus Christ, and that the ancient character of your word might strengthen our faith in who you are for us and what you have done for us in him. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.